right, welcome back. Welcome back. Happy New Year, everybody. Glad to see you here. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Jonah. And this morning, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 9, and we're going to work our way through chapter 4, verse 4. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 9 through chapter 4, verse 4. And if you're not quite sure where Jonah is, he's labeled as a minor prophet. They call the minor prophets that not because they were short or insignificant, but because their body of work was smaller. Uh, we have major prophets like Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah whose body of work was enormous, and then there are what are known as these minor prophets, and they are towards the end of the, the Old Testament, uh, all grouped together uh, there. <clears throat> right before you get to Matthew, uh, you, you find the minor prophets. Uh, that's how the, the Bible is organized. So in the book of Jonah, uh, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3, and then chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and we're going to ask the Lord's blessing as we read His Word today. Father, thank You for those who have gathered to hear Your Word together today. Thank You that we are not here to listen to me or uh, to listen to one another, but we understand by placing ourselves in this service, in this environment, that we are placing yourself under the authority of your revealed word uh, in the scriptures. We together acknowledge that it has authority over our lives and that we are to bend our lives to your word. And so we ask that you would reveal to us any way within us this morning uh, that needs attention by your word, by your spirit. We thank you for the power of your word, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to penetrate and to divide even between soul and uh, spirit. And so we thank you, Lord, that you use your word like a scalpel in the hands of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would do so today so that our lives may better reflect you and honor you and bring glory to you as Christ's followers. And so we ask your blessing on your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before you sit down, let's read God's word together starting in chapter 3, verse 9. Jonah has proclaimed his message, and the people have responded. And in the process of responding, word makes its way to the king, and the king issues a proclamation. And beginning in verse 9, at the end of his proclamation of repentance, the king says this, verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Thank you. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. He promised he would in Revelation 1-3 that blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who put them into practice. And so my prayer for you today is that you would hear the word of God and that you would put it into practice. Well, next week we want to focus on Jonah's response. He was angry with God. Have you ever felt angry toward God? Have you ever shaken your fist and thought, why did this happen? How did you allow this to come about, uh, experiencing disappointment? There's often a part of us that says, is is this okay? Are we allowed to express disappointment and anger and emotion toward God? Uh, But we're going to focus more on that next week, on how we process our emotions, how we process uh, hopes that we had and that uh, didn't come true for us, struggles with unanswered prayer, detours failures in life, and our emotional response to those things. We're going to focus more on that next week, but today I really want us to zoom in on verses 9 through 10 um, and this aspect of turning and relenting. It says there four times, uh, who knows, God may turn and relent. God may turn from his fierce anger. When God saw what they did, how they turned, God relented. And so we're going to focus a little bit um, on God and his unchanging nature. Does he change? Did he change his mind here? He, he said, um, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed through the mouth of his prophet. And then... At the proclamation of that decree, Nineveh responded, and God didn't change. He he did change. He changed his mind. He he shifted his behavior toward what he said would happen. And so we want to understand what does this mean. Um, And I have to say, the more we get into Jonah, and the more I've experienced this, there are some nuances about the book that have just left me really enthralled with this book. Uh, It seems like week for week, the density and the richness and the depth of this book is just so um, amazing to me as we as we think about this every week I make a list of relevant topics that come up each one deserving of its own sermon uh, and so I've tried to move us along but I also don't want to move along too fast um, and just skim over the top so I want us to zoom in occasionally on different portions of this book of Jonah and, and, and really get an understanding of God and get an understanding of the way in which he interacts with humanity because there are so many sermon worthy topics brought up in this book, Uh, and so I I want us to to focus this morning on verses 9 and 10, and we want to answer the question, does God change? Because he seems to change his mind in these two verses. Uh, Later, we understand in in Jonah 4.2 that we read also that that Jonah knew, knew God, he knew his character, and he knew that he was going to behave in a certain way, so there is a tension here. 
It seems like God turned and relented and changed, but, but at the same time, Jonah counted on the character of God that didn't change. He knew what God would do, and so he fled to Tarshish. So let's understand this together. Let's understand, does God change his mind, and, and does he stay the same, and how are we to approach this seeming tension that the text gives us today? And you may be asking yourself at the outset, really, why should I care today that God doesn't change? Why should this matter to me at all? And maybe by way of comparison, I could ask the question, uh, have you ever been around someone who changes? Well, you can answer that in a few ways. Not with, I don't want you to point at somebody, but, but there's a couple of, in some ways, it's a good thing we change, right? If, if we remained who we were, that would be a devastating thing. It's good that we change as long as we're changing in Christ-likeness and growing toward Christ-likeness. Teachability and growth and sensitivity to God's Spirit and the willingness to, to change is a beautiful part of our redemptive story. You see, we don't get hung up on your sins and failures of the past. There is lots of grace and mercy and redemption for those who are being transformed by one degree to another into the likeness of Christ. Isn't that right? I mean, aren't you glad that you change? That's good. It's a good thing as you're being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. But, but imagine if um, uh, thinking in terms of change negatively, um, when we think about a God who doesn't change, comparing it to people, um, if you've ever been around someone who changes constantly or changes negatively, I mean, all of us are prone to mood swings, right? And all of us are prone to changing emotions and, and one day everything is okay. And, and then under a certain set of circumstances, maybe we change negatively. Jonah, we pointed out in the first sermon here was, a dependable prophet. He had a track record of hearing the word of the Lord, proclaiming the word of the Lord, and doing well as a prophet. But in this situation, under these circumstances, the word of the Lord came to him, and he responded differently. And, and, and the point being is that you're, you don't know how you'll respond under certain circumstances. A certain trial might hit your life. A certain set of experiences might come into your life that squeeze you in just a certain way that things that you didn't even know were a part of you come out. And it could be an ugly situation. And, and if you're in this sort of changing position where you are not the same, or you're experiencing this up and down nature, part of the fall, part of humanity is being prone to inconsistency, right? Here we are, the fourth or fifth day of, uh, of, of the new year, the fifth day of the new year. You probably set a goal Many of you may have already failed that goal, right? You may have, I did it with all your heart on day two, three, and four, and then here we are day four and five, and maybe, maybe you've already got a, a list of scratched-through goals that you've already blown. That's part of humanity. It's part of the fall. We're all prone to change, mood swings, inconsistencies. One day we're committed, the next day we're not. One day we make a loud proclamation, and we see things in black and white, and then maybe a few months later, things aren't so black and white. There are gray areas for us. It's one thing for us to experience change. Um, it's another thing when we're affected and it's difficult to be around people who change frequently. It, it leaves us asking questions like, I wonder what mood 
he or she will be in today. Or I hope that this person is in a good mood and not angry. And, and that sort of volatility that's involved in a person can make it difficult to be around. Or think about uh, maybe you work for someone or you work for a company. I had a conversation not too long ago with someone who works for a company that continually changes. They make a promise of bonuses and then once those uh, a period runs out, they change that and those bonuses don't come through or a pay raise doesn't come through or a, a, a set of circumstances in your work environment, they change. If there's a constant sense of change, that's negative. We don't like that, especially when you depend on something like your job or like a loved one that is constantly changing. That's a negative form of change, and it's a very frustrating experience. Uh, think about um, Jacob as he dealt with Laban, right? Do you remember Genesis 31? Um, Jacob has fallen in love with Rachel, and he sort of makes this agreement with Laban that he will work for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. And on the wedding day, what happens? Laban switches wives. Somehow Jacob ends up with Leah, who has weak eyes. We don't know what weak eyes means, but, but Leah was the less desirable sister of the two. And, and Laban tricks Jacob and changes his wages. And this goes on and on for a period of almost 20 years, where finally Jacob is so sick of Laban that he packs up his wives, he packs up all of his children, and he flees in the middle of the night, and he gets two or three days ahead, and Laban pursues him, catches him, accuses him, and searches through all the tents, and searches through all his things, and there's this sort of massive family confrontation. Have you ever had one of those? Maybe a family reunion, or there's this big sort of family duel that's happening here, and Jacob has had enough. And in Genesis 31, uh, he says this, Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? You felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it right here in front of my kinsmen and your kinsmen so that they may decide between the two of us. Then he goes in this epic rant. These 20 years I have been with you, your lambs and your goats, they haven't miscarried and I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. Whatever was torn by wild beasts, I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss myself. From my hand, you required it, whether, um, by, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by the day the heat consumed me and by night the cold slept and, and slept fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times, right? This is an infuriating experience to be a part or to be under the authority or to be around someone who is so volatile that they change. Now think about that as you contrast that with a God who doesn't change. People break their promises, People say one thing one day, and within a short period of time, <clears throat> they renege on that, or they fall back on that. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. This is just a product of what it means to be in 
fallen humanity. People change. They change their behaviors, their commitment wavers. It's always a struggle within the church to find volunteers who volunteer at a consistent level. There's usually a sort of a wave that happens with volunteers is that they're really excited for a period of time, and then they're not excited for a long period of time, and then they might disappear for a period of time, and then they might renew their commitment and be more committed for a period of time. This sort of wavering change is typical for us, but it's not typical with God. God doesn't change. This God loved you yesterday. This God loves you today. And this God consistently will love you tomorrow. He was developing you at work yesterday. He was doing the same today. And he will continue to develop you until you reach the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. He is utterly completely committed to you as he was in eternity past from Ephesians, right? He chose you before the foundations of the world to be in Christ and he will see you through John 10. He will hold you in the palm of his hand and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. We don't understand this hesed, steadfast commitment from God. He won't let go. He won't get tired and he will hold you fast. Don't we celebrate that about him? He does not change. And because he doesn't change, you can be propelled to greater faith and greater trust in God. Greater faith, greater trust, because he doesn't change. Because he doesn't change, you can trust his character, especially in times of uncertainty and trial. And because he doesn't change, you can experience an intimate and deepening relationship with him. Now imagine if he changed, the target would consistently change, but because he's the same, you can continuously come to him and grow in intimacy with him. So let's take a look back at our text, and I want you to see a couple of points this morning. I want you to see that you can, um, knowing that God doesn't change, will propel you to greater faith and trust. It will thrust you into trusting God because he doesn't change. So look back at verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, the king has made this proclamation, and he says, who knows? Who knows? We've done all this stuff. I've issued the proclamation that if we, if we, we heard that he's going to destroy us, and he sent a prophet to us, and this prophet has declared that God's going to destroy us. So who knows? Who knows that if we don't humble ourselves? And look at all the things that they do. Back in verse 6, the king hears the word. He, he gets up from his throne. He takes off his royal robe, and he, he trades his royal robe for sackcloth. And he, he sits in ashes. I don't know if he had ashes available. Maybe he went through all the trouble to find a fire and, and to pick up the ashes. Have you ever had a fire in your house and, and maybe one of your jobs is to scoop the ashes? He grabbed a shovel full of ashes and he just sat down in it in this um, <clears throat> outfit of sackcloth. It was a sign, an image of humility and brokenness. He issued a proclamation. It's not enough for me to sit in sackcloth and ashes, but he issues a proclamation to all the residents of the entire area. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let not man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And it all hinges on this word, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will change. Who knows? Maybe he'll see our humility. Maybe he'll see our repentance. Who knows? Maybe he'll relent from this. 
The whole city is humbled and brought to its knees. It's, it's abandoning its pride and its arrogance and its self-sufficient ways. And it's saying, who knows, maybe we, if we throw ourselves on the mercy of God, maybe he'll change and relent of this. Have you ever had a deep conviction of sin? Have you ever experienced deep conviction? Occasionally, through my walk with Christ, <clears throat> I will have sinned in some way against the Lord and been struck by a deep conviction. A sense in which the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind what I've done and the sin that I've committed. <clears throat> and in the process of that deep conviction, I am confronted by the holiness of God. And I can remember if maybe 12 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, the conviction was so heavy that uh, there was a hand-wringing sort of nervousness and sensitivity and um, confession. It was like uttering a prayer every minute sort of period. It lasted for maybe 24, maybe 30 hours where uh, I just I was, had this sort of hair-trigger awareness uh, of confession that I was so sensitive. You understand hair-trigger, it's this noun where a firearm is set to release at the slightest pressure. Sometimes we think of hair-trigger as someone has a hair-trigger temper where at just any moment they could explode and rage could come out. Well, in this sort of deep conviction state of where I had sinned against the Lord and He had convicted me, there was this sensitivity, a real hair-trigger sensitivity to anything that was done where I was confessing sin and I was praying and I was seeking the Lord. Now, now this extreme awareness of sin in my own life was placed in contrast with the extreme holiness and justice and righteousness of God. And that sort of convergence, you know, in Oklahoma we experience all these tornadoes and it's a convergence of warm Gulf air from the Gulf of Mexico with sort of Arctic air that comes down through Colorado. And when those two clash, it creates these violent tornadoes. When your sin clashes with the holiness of God, it, the Holy Spirit produces this clash. And, and for those who are outside of Christ, that, that doesn't go away. In Christ, I understand that Jesus took that punishment on the cross and that I don't have to be punished for that sin, but this is more of the uh, Hebrews, God disciplines those He loves, and from time to time, those who are in Christ experience a deep conviction of sin. Have you ever experienced a deep conviction of sin? Have you ever had a hand-wringing experience where you just need peace that God has forgiven you and He has redeemed you and that that sin is covered? And, and once that comes in for His children, He floods you with peace. And He floods you with mercy and He floods you with love, but it's a discipline. Well, that, that goes away for the believer in Christ as we confess and repent. But for the unbeliever, there is... Uh, an, an entire state of this hand-wringing uh, experience that will come in the judgment. And it's the Lord's mercy that brings us to this point. God's mercy brought the king 
to this point of their extreme awareness of the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God, and they responded, they responded well. How do you respond when God convicts you of sin? Are you just eager to put it behind you? Do you look for distraction? Do you justify it? Do you try to wiggle around it? Do you sort of shake your finger at God and say, I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for you or if it weren't for them or if it weren't for... There are a lot of ways that you can respond to the conviction of sin, but the Ninevites here responded really well with humility, demonstrated by sackcloth and ashes. They responded with confession. Right? They, they acknowledged their ways as sinful. They changed They repented, their behavior changed. Let every one of you stop his violent ways. And and even though we understand that the Ninevites' behavior and response to God was temporary, it's still exemplary. They still did a, a really good job. Conviction came and they responded well to it. But notice how they respond with this element of faith and hope. Who knows? Who knows? Those two words, if you were to do a word search through Scripture, you would see who knows are on the lips of some important people in Scripture. King David, uh, after losing uh, an infant child, had fasted for days and days and days and days and lay on the ground in humility, just seeking God's face. And when the child dies, his servants come and say, why don't you get up and and eat after the child is gone. And then he said, well, I went through all this behavior because I thought, who knows, maybe God will have mercy. It was a step of faith. You think about Mordecai in the book of Esther that uh, we preached through the book of Esther when our churches first merged. And in the book of Esther, that great passage that, um, that you probably have on a coffee cup or maybe your grandma sewed it on a thing for you, it says, you know, who knows that maybe God didn't raise you up for such a time as this. That little phrase, who knows, gives this element of faith. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So who knows becomes sort of this solid statement of trust in the revealed character of God for those whose orientation is already in a God-fearing posture. Right? So you see, the, you see the pattern here. There is conviction of sin. God convicts you of sin, and upon making you aware of your sin, your right response is humility with the hope Who knows that he will be true to his character and he might turn and relent from the disaster or from the circumstances that you're facing. It is a a place of hope and and humility and trust. God will always act according to his character. He won't change. And so even though your circumstances change, God can be counted on 
you can trust him. That who knows statement can propel you into a position where you say, who knows, maybe he'll, maybe he'll turn, maybe he'll be favorable toward us. His word says that he will, and he has a pattern of blessing those who turn to him in this sort of pattern of humility and repentance and brokenness and responsiveness to him. So you might think through that and think, well, isn't this sermon about God not changing? But, but here in this passage, we see him turning and relenting, changing. So, so does he change or not, you might say? Is he, didn't he proclaim through Jonah that disaster is coming? And anytime he spoke through the prophets, wasn't there this sort of, thus saith the Lord? And it will be carried out. And wasn't that a marker of a false prophet? That if they said, the Lord says this, then he didn't come to happen. If that didn't come to happen, that he was stoned to death as a false prophet. So did Jonah proclaim that there would be disaster? And did God change or not? Well, it seems from this text, if you notice the repetition in verses 9 and 10 of turning and relenting, turning and relenting, and God did turn and relent. Is he consistent does he change or doesn't he? Well, let me just show you how God relenting and turning from this foretold disaster isn't him wavering in his character, but is actually him being consistent with his revealed will and promises. We call this the doctrine of immutability. And immutability is just one of the many revealed attributes of God. The doctrine of immutability refers to this idea that God cannot change in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. I'll leave this up, and you might snap a picture of it on your way out this morning. But this describes all the different attributes of God. And if you're going to know God intimately, you want to know him in the ways that he reveals himself. He reveals himself in scripture and they're manifested in all of these attributes in the ways in which he reveals himself. And one of those ways is immutability. Uh, and I would love for you to take a look at this. It'll be on display outside. And it comes with it a bit of a warning because when we begin to approach God looking at individual aspects of his personality, you understand what can happen. We can overemphasize one attribute over another. See, you might love the idea that God is gracious and forgiving. And if you overemphasize that aspect of who he has revealed himself to be, that it often comes with a diminished view of his holiness and his righteousness and his justness and his discipline. So overlooking or overemphasizing one aspect of who he is is a dangerous way to approach him. And if you find yourself always praying and worshiping God in a favorite way in which he has revealed himself at the cost of all the ways that he has revealed himself, there is a danger there that you need to be aware of. A warning light might flash on your dashboard. Don't overemphasize one part of who you like him to be at the cost of who he has revealed himself to be. We don't get a choice. That's called idolatry. And we'll cover more of that next week as we look into Jonah's promises but when we think about the immutability of God, we're just going to take a moment with that warning in mind, understanding that God can't change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Tim Challey says, to study God's attributes is to study his character and to ask and answer questions like, who is God and what is he like? We classify all the different attributes in a way in which we talk about them as incommunicable and communicable. Incommunicable are those attributes of God that he doesn't share with any of his beings. Things like his power or his glory. He doesn't share those and transfer those. His communicable attributes are those in which we can all experience things like his love. We can experience the love of God and we can be a conduit for the love of God and be loving people. We're supposed to be loving and unified people. Those are his communicable attributes versus his incommunicable attributes. But it's important to understand that God is not simply the sum of all these attributes, but he is whole and undivided. And we can lose our focus by overemphasizing one attribute. An illustration might help. At funerals, I've become accustomed to saying things like, um, I acknowledge that I, I only know something about this loved one. You had a different experience with this loved one. You, you may have known them earlier in life, and they may have been rotten, and they may have been you know, a terrible person. But I also have to acknowledge that, that as a pastor, people really only show me a really small part of their life, right? I don't get invited into every part of your life. Um, typically, I mean, it's not good necessarily. I wish that we could all just be sort of vulnerable and sincere with each other. Sincere means without wax, right? We don't polish ourselves up. We can just be sincere with each other. But the reality is that as a pastor, people just show me a little part of their life. And so when people ask me to give a character reference, I always have to say, now listen, this, I only know a part of this person, and it's only a part that they choose to show me. And that part usually doesn't it's usually a bit skewed of the reality of who they are, right? People come in and they're sort of at their best when they're around, like pastor, the title pastor, not maybe not me pastor, but, but you understand that. It's, a, it's an uncertain thing. And so I've got accustomed to sort of acknowledging that I don't know you. I only know who you've revealed yourself to me to be. You might leave this place and having walked with you and spent time with you, you may have had clean language and you may have spoken in blesseds and thou arts and holy and bless you, brother, and God love you. And now you may have said all those things and, and you may go out in the parking lot and cuss out one of your fellow church folks here, right? You may, you may have nasty language all week long and tell dirty jokes and you may be totally different than who I know you to be. But listen, it's not fair for me to only know one part of you in the same way, it's not fair for you to overemphasize one part of who God is, especially at the cost of who He has revealed Himself to be in totality. This propels you, should propel you into understanding and knowing God deeply that He doesn't change this one aspect of Him. And God doesn't change because He promised that if a nation not Israel, but if a nation were to hear from God and relent, that he promised them mercy. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. And we read this earlier. And who knows whether God will not turn and relent and leave you a blessing. In Ezekiel 18 Verses 21 through 23, the character of God 
says, if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all the statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Jeremiah 18 affirms this aspect of who God is with what's called a cautionary declaration. That is that God will warn and proclaim his word with the hope of triggering a response. It's a cautionary declaration. God will warn nations with the goal of triggering repentance. When the nation repents, God will relent of the punishment. Listen to Jeremiah 18. In the context of, I am the potter, you're the clay. He told Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. And the potter destroyed some vessel, right? And then he crumpled it up and then he remade it. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and he said, O house of Israel, I can do with you as this potter has done. Like clay in a potter's hand, so you are in my hand. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break it and destroy it. So there's the warning. In Jeremiah 18, 7, if a nation hears that I will pluck it up and destroy it, verse 8, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. You see that? It's like my dad, you know, driving down the road. We, we went on this long road trip to Arizona, me and my three brothers and my dad, and I didn't even know if we got to the panhandle of Oklahoma before he said, if, if you don't knock it off, right, that's the, that's the warning, right? I'm going to pull this car over. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever had that crazy claw from your dad that comes back and just starts swiping at everything behind you, and if it grabs a hold of your leg, he's just going to clamp down on that thing? Well, haven't you experienced that a few times when he says, if you don't stop it, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the car around. That's the experience. That's the warning of the prophet, and the promise from the prophet is, the promise from God through the prophet is if you hear that warning, don't make me turn the car around or turn this car over, or whatever that is. If that warning is met with a change of behavior, then he doesn't pull the car over, right? Thank God. The claw doesn't come back. There is no sort of swiping that happens. That's the simple illustration. God promised that if he warns any nation, that he would relent from the disaster. So that relenting doesn't mean that he changes. It actually means that he is consistent and it confirms his immutability, that he doesn't change, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And let's, let's think through this final point, because knowing that God doesn't change gives us a greater freedom to know him more intimately and to worship him more freely. Listen to how this played out in Jonah's life. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah is angry. And he's angry because he knew God. Look at what he says. Well, that's why I left. I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew. He had an intimate relationship with God. But think through uh, this way with uh, Jonah. He didn't have an intimacy with God. He had a knowledge of God. God is bound to be who he is. He is who he is. He is consistent with his nature. 
He is unchanging and always acts according to his character. Jonah knew his character, so Jonah knew what he would do, and that's why he ran. Now, understand this. Jonah had a right view of God. That is, he was completely theologically correct. He was just cold, indifferent, unloving, and completely disobedient to God. That's why you've known some of the meanest people you know can be church members. They can be theologically correct. They can be doctrinally correct. They can quote Bible verses, and they can have ugly behavior. Because we don't equate godliness and Christ-likeness with knowledge, but with behavior. Amen? Fruit... There is a fruitfulness that is produced in your life. Your character changes as you apply the Word of God through the Spirit of God. But the longer and the more familiar you are with the Word of God without putting it into practice, the uglier you can become and the more you can actually misrepresent God. Jonah is a perfect example of having a knowledge of God but not reflecting Him at all. God is a God of love and justice and mercy and grace, and he he couldn't wait to show mercy. We're going to finish the chapter of Jonah 4, and he's going to set up a tent so he could watch fire fall from heaven. He wants to see God destroy Nineveh, and God's not going to do it. That's some of the nastiest, ugliest behavior from anyone who would call themselves a follower or a Christ follower. Have you ever experienced someone who names the name of Christ, but their behavior is just ugly and nasty and hateful and cold and doesn't represent the Bible, but they can quote Scripture up and down? That hardness of heart toward the Word of God affirms the fact that you can have a right view of God, a theological understanding of who He is, an accurate view of God that doesn't move your heart to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and worship Him and surrender. That hurts. Gibson, right? I feel it too. I'm guilty of the same thing, right? We can understand and know, but it's one thing for it to channel and become a part of your behavior. That's why it's all the more important to respond with sensitivity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it propels you into this deeper intimacy with God, this knowledge of God. Jonah knew God, but he only knew him in a limited way, in a factual way. It didn't change him. But think in contrast to Moses. I've been meditating recently in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 3, a few weeks ago, I was absolutely struck by this passage. Deuteronomy 3, 23 through 24. Moses is recounting to those who are about to go in and possess the land. And he's talking about how God won't let him go into the land. And Moses pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty acts as yours? That's a 120-year-old Moses who had experienced God in a burning bush, who had experienced the salvation of God in the river, right, in the uh, the raising by the Egyptian princess and, and the, all the ways in which he experienced the fire at night and the pillar of fire at day 
and the pillar of smoke at day and the parting of the Red Sea and the experience of God at Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai and the receiving of the glory of God and all these different... Moses experienced God intimately and at the end of his life, right before his death, he says, you have only begun to show me who you are. Isn't that something? Moses had an experiential intimacy with God. In Exodus 33, it says he used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, and he would go and speak to God. And the word says in Exodus 33:11 that God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. In verse 33, chapter 33, verse 13, he says, If I found favor in your sight, Lord, show me your ways so that I may know you more intimately. And the Lord shows him. This value of knowing God intimately, personally, goes way beyond Jonah's knowledge of God theologically or factually. It transforms a person. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the rich man boast in his riches, or the strong man boast in his strength, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows me and understands that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in that I delight, says the Lord. Paul in Philippians 3.10 says, I count everything as a loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing God personally. Jesus, even in the high priestly prayer, prayer of John 17, 3, says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Have you settled for a Jonah-level relationship with God? Oh, yeah, I already know that. Oh, I've already heard this. I can quote that scripture. I've already studied that passage once. That's sort of level of head knowledge that hasn't transformed you through a living relationship with the living God, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, that doesn't reflect intimacy with God. And knowing God propels you into greater faith and trust and intimacy with Him. That's what I see here in this passage, that Jonah knew about God, but he didn't reflect that God. He didn't have an intimacy with that God. He didn't have a relationship with that God. Every other person in the book of Jonah fears God in a, in a, a way that's way deeper than Jonah ever could. He becomes to us this negative example. I mean, by the end of the book, we don't even know if he's a believer or not. I don't even, none of the book is even written by Jonah. Somebody's narrating this book to us as though Jonah on his way out, I'm just speculating, told someone this story and they wrote it down. I, I don't even understand. I still don't know if we'll see Jonah. And I apologize if we do, Jonah. Sorry. If we, if we see him on the street of gold. I'll high five him, I guess. But, but at the end of the book, I have no idea where he stands with the Lord. But I do know that he has this surface level understanding of who God is, but it doesn't change him. Oh, Father, would that we be changed by knowing you? Would that our behavior reflects a fear of God that responds to conviction of sin, that responds in humility and repentance and brokenness and confession, 
Thank you that you don't hold our sins against us, that though our sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Thank you that you do not hold our sins against us, but when we turn in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we experience newness of life. And that newness of life says, I'm not who I was. Thank God that we change. But forgive us, Father, when we don't respond to you in sensitivity and in humility and in repentance. We worship you that you are a God who doesn't change and that we can trust you and know you more intimately. We pray that we would live 2020 this year, that we would pursue intimacy with you, that as a deer pants for streams of water, so our soul would long for you, Psalm 42 says. I pray that that would be our reality, that we would yearn to know you intimately, to pursue relationship with you in a way that doesn't look like Jonah, in a way that maybe looks more like the king of Nineveh or the sailors, those who have a tender heart toward you. Would we respond to your conviction well and be a people who are willing to apologize, to confess, to repent, and to move forward in our sanctification? Thank you that you don't hold our sins against us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that provides for the sins, for the forgiveness of sins for many. We ask that it would be applied to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you stand with us as we sing this last song? Thank you.